don't use all pronouns, and I'm the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the March 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and it's a privilege as always to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of the GALS LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments, both in the United States and abroad, affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month, we're examining a number of First Amendment issues, particularly in the context of public school book and online hate speech. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And we may have one additional guest listener, so apologies in advance if our newest legal member accidentally hops in on our podcast. I'm happy to be back from parental leave, and I've got my little one with me on my lap as we speak. So before we jump into today's cases, I know there's been some very important things going on in terms of updates affecting our lead article on this notes. Should we start there today? Let's... Uh talk very briefly about this case, which is actually the subject of the first article in this in this issue, and also to apologize to our Law Notes readers that we're very late this month. The uh, March issue is going to be going out later this week, just before April. We, we kind of got snowed under with stuff. But there's a Fourth Circuit panel decision from which the state of West Virginia has taken an emergency application to the U.S. Supreme Court and we should discuss it because sometime in the next few weeks, uh, the court shadow docket is likely to include a response uh, to this. And this involves, the case is BPJ versus the West Virginia State Board of Education. West Virginia has a law banning transgender girls from participating in girls' sports in the schools. And uh, this is a case in which the federal district court issued a preliminary injunction back in the summer of 2021 in favor of the girl and said that she should be allowed to participate while the case was pending. Uh, it's basically a Title IX and equal protection case. And then the judge changed his mind. And in January, as we reported previously in Law Notes in the February issue, the judge turned around and granted summary judgment to the state and ordered that the preliminary injunction be dissolved. The plaintiffs have filed an appeal of that summary judgment to the Fourth Circuit, but they also applied to the judge to stay his order and allow the, uh, the plaintiff to continue playing in girls' sports this spring as the case is pending on appeal. And he refused. So they asked the Fourth Circuit and a, th- a panel of the Fourth Circuit voted two to one to keep that preliminary injunction in effect. The state has filed an emergency application to the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to reinstate the trial judge's order to dissolve the preliminary injunction. A response has been filed by Lambda Legal and the ACLU, who are representing the plaintiff in this case. Any day now, we could have a ruling on this. So it's something to watch out for. Chief Justice Roberts is the judge with responsibility for Fourth Circuit emergency applications and things of that sort. Rather than immediately refer the application to the full court, he asked for a response from the plaintiff which suggests that there's some interest there. And the response was filed on April 20th. And so it's sitting there with the court and we could have big news anytime soon. Obviously, if anything happens, 
uh, in time for the April podcast. We'll certainly report about that, and that might end up being our lead story. Who knows? So that's just a, a quickie update on a case that you read about in February and heard about in February, because I think we talked about it in February, and that may have an important development coming up. Well, thank you for the quick update. And just as a reminder, we're recording today on March 29th, 2023. So this really isn't any day now, maybe needing revisions to the podcast shortly, so to speak, in terms of breaking news. Our first case today takes us down to the Southern District of Georgia. Let's talk about Barr versus Tucker. Okay, Barr versus Tucker. And this is one of, as you said before in the introduction, a slew of First Amendment cases Many of them, I would say, cultural war cases uh, revolving around, uh, in some cases, the public schools. So in this case, we have uh, Lindsay Barr, a substitute teacher at a public school in Georgia, and she is a devout Christian who believes that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Okay, so she saw a poster that was up at the school with a picture of two men with a heart floating between them. And the caption, all adults have the right to marriage and to raise a family. She whipped out her phone and took a picture and shared it with the parent. And they discussed, presumably, how opposed they were to this. But she didn't raise any issue with the school yet. The next year, though, the school introduced a read-aloud program where all the students in assembly, they, they would have a book read. That would be, you know, the common uh, interest of everybody. And one of the books on the list is called All Are Welcome, a picture book containing illustrations that picture same-sex couples with school-aged children. And uh, Lindsay Barr had two children in that school who would be summoned to the assembly for the read-aloud program. She was really upset. She uh, wanted uh, contacted the teacher of uh, her child who was going to be in the program and asked that they be excused from participating in the program. And she was so concerned that she wrote a letter, uh, an email to the principal of the school, setting forth her views about marriage and uh, stating her disagreement with, uh, with them uh, reading this book. And they called her in, asked her you know, to discuss what her concerns were, and there was a conversation. And then she found that she was unable to access the system that she used to obtain substitute teaching assignments. Without telling her, they had just removed her from the system. So uh, she was asked, why, why was she removed from the system? And they said, well, you are bringing in with you biases that you have, and you're contacting teachers about it. There are teachers who told us now they don't want you to sub in their classes. We've decided we're just going to remove you from the list. So she sued them. She claimed that she had a First Amendment right to voice her views on this issue and that they were retaliating against her for raising this issue. And she wanted a preliminary injunction reinstating her while the case is pending. And this is uh, Senior Judge William T. Moore of the District Court for the Southern District of Georgia denied her the preliminary injunction. And this gets into the somewhat intricate issue of public sector employee speech and when is it protected and when is it not protected. And uh, this is an area where there, there is a series of Supreme Court decisions and there's a robust body of law and the lower courts, which indicate that it's very difficult to draw these lines. Speech by a public employee 
is not treated the same as speech by a non-government employee for purposes of deciding whether it's protected under the First Amendment with respect not to punishing a person, but with respect to uh, disciplining or removing them from a job as a public employee. And the lead case on this, well, there are two lead cases on this. The early one is Pickering, which may be familiar from law school days for most of our listeners who are lawyers or law students, Pickering about the teacher who wrote a letter to the editor of a local newspaper complaining about the way that the school was allocating funds as between sports and academics. He wanted more academics. And uh, he wrote this letter at a time when the annual school budget was up for a vote, which is why it was newsworthy. And he got fired. And the question was whether he could get fired for writing that letter. And was he protected by the First Amendment in writing that letter? And the court said, well, if you're writing as a citizen, in your role as a citizen, and this isn't speech that is part of your job, you're protected by the First Amendment. Unless the school could show that uh, his speech was going to disrupt the educational process. But it seems the letter was published and nothing happened that, that, that was disruptive at the school. So Mr. Pickering was protected. But in a later case, Garcetti versus Zabalos, that involved an assistant, assistant district attorney who wrote an internal memorandum criticizing the way the office had gotten a search warrant in a particular case. Uh, and he was disciplined. And he claimed that that memorandum was protected by the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court said, no, when you wrote that memorandum, that was part of your job. Therefore, it isn't really your speech, it's government speech. And they can discipline you if they feel that what you did was improper or inappropriate in some way. So the issue in this case is, how, you, how is the court going to classify Lindsay Barr's speech? And the court decides, well, she is speaking on a subject of public interest and debate, certainly is a hot topic today. This is culture war stuff. You know, what is to be said in schools about same-sex parents? And at what grade? In Florida, it's illegal to talk about this in school for the first three grades and possibly for higher grades. And there's a proposal there to extend that to higher grades. This is part of uh, the governor's campaign to pander to his base uh, and expand it. So at any rate, the court decided that when she was protesting internally, it was not public speech. It was government speech or it was part of her job. And ultimately, the court said uh, she seemed to be more concerned with whether her children would be exposed to this rather than whether the school should change its policy or something of that sort. And her speech was all internal. It wasn't like she wrote a letter to the newspapers or something like that. This, isn't, this is distinguishable from the Pickering case on that ground. Uh, and as to the free exercise of religion, the court said speech that's part of a free exercise of religion should be treated the same way as speech under the First Amendment for these purposes. The Pickering balance is, is here. And he said she was, in effect, being disruptive in this sense, because there were teachers who didn't want her to substitute in their classes because of what they were concerned she would say. And the school had an interest, which the principal articulated in protecting our gay students and protecting our students who have gay parents. And, uh, you know, we are trying to create an environment where every student is welcome and every family is valued. 
and she is voicing views contrary to that. Certainly, we don't have to allow her to substitute in the school if she's going to bring those biases in. So she lost on this one. I wouldn't be surprised if she appeals. And an appeal from Georgia goes to the 11th Circuit. Who knows what's going to happen in the 11th Circuit if this goes up. But this is just on preliminary injunction at this point. He had also denied her a, a request for an evidentiary hearing before issuing uh, a ruling on the preliminary injunction. He said that, well, the facts really aren't controverted here. I don't see why I need a hearing. So that's another issue on which she might appeal. So that's where we stand on that case. That's Barr versus Tucker, and that's out of the uh, Southern District of Georgia. We'll be curious to see if an appeal is in fact filed. You mentioned Florida Don't Say Gay. We're going to come back to that issue to bookend our conversation, so to speak. But next, we're going to check in about what's going on in terms of hate speech and social media and bring us back closer to home for a New York case. Right. This is a, uh, a ruling by U.S. District Judge Andrew Carter in the Southern District of New York, where I am sitting. I don't think it's where you are sitting, necessarily. Uh, where I am sitting in the Southern District of New York, the courthouse is right down the street here from New York Law School, where I'm doing my end of this recording. This is a case that was brought to challenge the enforceability of a new statute passed by New York just last year, the Hateful Conduct Law. And the Hateful Conduct Law was inspired by the events in Buffalo in May of 2022, a racially motivated mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo. And the shooter had posted all kinds of incendiary stuff on uh, social media. And following the shooting, Governor Kathy Hochul directed Attorney General Letitia James to investigate the shooting and focus on, quote, the specific online platforms that were used to broadcast and amplify the acts and intentions of the mass shooting. And uh, the Attorney General produced a report in October of 2022, recommending greater accountability for online platforms for allowing, quote, hateful and dangerous content to spread on their platforms. The New York State Legislature promptly acted by passing a new law, which the governor signed in December of 2022. So one can say right away, when you rush to pass legislation very quickly, the chances that you will make a mistake are great. And in this case, the judge thought they made a mistake of constitutional dimensions. The plaintiffs in the case are uh, Eugene Volokh, a law professor at UCLA and a prolific blogger. And so his blog might be subject to this law, as well as a, a social networking company, Rumble Canada Inc. and its subsidiary Locals Technology Inc., which uh, run social media that are a favorite uh, according to the writer of this article, uh, contributing writer Matt Goodwin, who's, uh, who, who does an article for us each month, is a practicing lawyer here in New York. And it describes its mission as to protect a free and open internet and to create technologies that are immune to cancel culture. And they operate a website that allows creators to communicate and share contact directly with unpaid and paid subscribers, and we do not censor anything they want to post. So far-right people love that kind of a website. They can post anything they want. The law that was passed in December 2022 was titled Social Media Networks Hateful Conduct Prohibited. Hateful conduct is defined in the law as the use of a social media network to vilify, humiliate, 
or incite violence against a group or a class of persons on the basis of race, color, religion, ethnicity, national origin, disability, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. And as we know, hate speech online has been linked to homophobic attacks on people, physical attacks, as well as, of course, verbal harassment of people online. And the way the legislature went about this is they said that everyone who's operating a social network or a platform of any sort on which people could post stuff has to provide an easy and obvious mechanism for people who want to complain about what was posted to communicate their complaint to the operator of the social network. And furthermore, they have to post on their network, and obviously it has to be very visible, their policy with respect to hateful conduct and how they will deal with complaints, right? So the plaintiffs say this violates their First Amendment rights. It requires them to speak. It requires them to take a position on what constitutes hateful conduct and to publish it on their website. And that this, having this on their websites and requiring being to post on their websites will chill the speech of people who wanna post stuff on their websites. Uh, so the key issue for Judge Carter, of course, is, is the kind of messages or speech, or in this case, it would be text on the social media, is it protected by the First Amendment? Is hateful speech protected by the First Amendment? And he said there, the Supreme Court precedents are clear. Hateful speech as such is protected by the First Amendment. Speech with which we disagree is protected by the First Amendment. There are certain exceptions. You know, clear and present danger of inciting imminent uh, unlawful conduct and stuff like that. But that's a subset of hateful speech. And so this is a broad uh, statutory definition. It is somewhat ambiguous and vague. Who's going to draw the line on what uh, constitutes vilifying or inciting violence or uh, humiliating? There, these are somewhat subjective terms. And from whose perspective are we to evaluate them? The judge said it's pretty clear on its face that this statute violates the First Amendment. And so the plaintiffs are entitled, in this case, I think it was a preliminary injunction, to prohibit enforcement of this law pending an ultimate decision on the merits. And it strikes me that there's not much question based on reading this opinion as to what Judge Carter will think about the merits. But I would imagine that if he issues a summary judgment in favor of the plaintiffs, the New York State may file an appeal to the Second Circuit. So we'll see where this one is going. But once again, this is, of, of course, of note because one of the groups that the legislature was eager to protect by uh, introducing some kind of accountability measures for social media was the LGBTQ community. So that's our second big First Amendment case. Yeah, and as you pointed out, risky, difficult, to push through well-intentioned, thoughtful legislation on such a quick timeline. This was a very fast response. So it'll be interesting to see if this legislation is able to uphold additional scrutiny by the courts. So returning back to our book discussion, I know we have a pair of cases that kind of further illuminate the so-called parental rights doctrines, thinking about what's going on in Florida and Missouri. Okay, and in, in Florida, we're dealing with an attempt to challenge the so-called don't say gay law. And in Missouri, we're dealing with a group of parents who are attempting to challenge censorship 
of books in the school library by uh, a school district, uh, independent school district in uh, Western Missouri. Uh, so first, take a look at the Florida situation. And I think most of our listeners are familiar, at least with the way the media has communicated about the so-called don't say gay law. This is a law that was supposedly mainly concerned with parental rights and education. Very interesting because certain parents' rights are being trampled by this law. I mean, if they want their students, their children to be exposed to education about sexual orientation and gender identity in elementary school, uh, the state is not letting them do it. But the, uh, the statute says that uh, the curriculum may not include uh, lessons about sexual orientation or gender identity in the first three grades. And in uh, the fourth grade through the 12th grade, because we're dealing with the public schools, it has to be age appropriate. Whatever is presented has to be age appropriate. A vague term that, and, and this, is, this is one of the purpose of vague terms, it throws a chill into what happens in the schools. And so a, uh, a group of parents and uh, organizations, advocacy organizations, brought a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court in uh, the Northern District of Florida, which got assigned to one of Mr. Trump's judges, Alan Windsor. And they filed a complaint which alleged a violation of constitutional rights here. And the complaint is chock full of anecdotes. Anecdotes about how various teachers and schools have reacted to the passage of this law like teachers being instructed to remove the safe space stickers, rainbow stickers that you uh, see at some schools that people put up, the teacher says, my classroom is a safe space for LGBTQ people. I put up a little rainbow sticker. The school said, you gotta take those stickers down. We're told that in some schools, books on LGBTQ subjects have been removed from elementary school and even middle school and high school libraries. We're told that a certain play could be put on. You know, there's all these different anecdotes. Part of the problem with the anecdotes is the anecdotes didn't relate to the plaintiffs in the case. And part of the problem is, uh, and Judge Windsor goes in great detail through all of this in an opinion that has not been officially published. We, we were able to get a, uh, a PDF file containing uh, the slip opinion, which hasn't shown up on Westlaw or Lexis, but uh, it was on the website of one of the litigating organizations. Uh, so we were able to uh, write a, an article about it. Corey Gibbs, one of our contributing writers, is a former student of mine from New York Law School, uh, wrote the article about this one. And he said, the problem is the anecdotes don't relate to the specific provision of the law that they're challenging. The specific provision of the law talks about what's in the curriculum and what you're teaching in the classroom. And it doesn't, it doesn't tell you to remove stickers. It doesn't tell you about what can be said outside the classroom. So it doesn't relate to a school play. It's, you know, you might quibble with some of his characterizations here. And he did grant the, the motion to dismiss here, but without prejudice, they can come back and try to write a new complaint. He said, you're going to have to present me with some plaintiffs who have standing here because none of the plaintiffs here have standing. None of the plaintiffs here 
have suffered a direct injury or have are, are subject to an injury. There was a teacher who's in one of the schools where this stuff is happening, where books were removed. But he said, you haven't shown me how the teacher was injured by the removal of these books from the library. And you, on the one hand, you could ask, this is a Trump appointed judge. He's obviously a, a heavily vetted right winger. But on the other hand, uh, as uh, our writer Corey Gibbs says, whoever drafted this complaint wasn't doing their homework on standing and on showing that the plaintiffs that they have have either suffered an injury, a direct injury, or are in imminent danger of uh, suffering an injury. How about getting parents of students who are in schools where this stuff is happening? That gets you a little closer. But furthermore, you have to relate it to the actual provision of the statute that they're challenging, which doesn't require the removal of any books. And we have a situation where school districts are reacting to the existence of the statute based mainly on the publicity about it. And I, I would say mainly about on the publicity by gay rights groups who are criticizing it. It doesn't say you can't say gay. It says there are certain things you can't include in the curriculum in the first three grades. And then there's a somewhat ambiguous provision about what happens in the upper grades. But uh, the, the suggestion by uh, the writer of our article is go back and do a better complaint and take a second shot at it because it was dismissed without prejudice. The other case you want to talk about from Missouri is a, uh, a school district in Missouri, uh, in Independence, Missouri, adopted a policy that said anybody in the world can challenge a book, any book that's in our public school library collection. Anybody can challenge it. They just have to file a written challenge claiming that the book is unsuitable to be in the library. And we immediately remove the book from the shelves. We appoint a special committee to review it, consisting of teachers, parents, librarians. And the committee makes recommendations to a special committee of the Board of Education. And the Board of Education finally votes. And no one is notified outside of this process that this is going on, that the book is being challenged. The fact that a book is being challenged is not made public which means people who might want to support the inclusion of that book in the library are not notified in any way that this process is taking place and have no input into it. It's a very unilateral process. So a bunch of parents sued the local school district on behalf of their, their minor children who attend schools in the district, challenging the constitutionality of this district policy. And the judge, Roseanne Ketchmark of the... Uh, Western District of Missouri, uh, who was appointed by President Obama. So probably not a right winger. She decided that under existing Supreme Court precedents regarding the uh, ability of school districts to decide what to include in their libraries, they don't have a First and Fourteenth Amendment case. That the policy on its face is non-discriminatory. Any book can be challenged on any basis. The policy doesn't uh, single out LGBTQ books like uh, the policies in some school districts around the country where they're busy pulling you know, books on LGBTQ subjects off the shelves. This is uh, just opening up to parents or any person actually to file a complaint about a book. And then we'll have a committee to look at it and they'll make a recommendation and the Board of Education will have the ultimate say on it. If they actually ban a book, 
go ahead, solicit court, see what happens. But they're not going to join the policy. She refused to issue a preliminary injunction in this case. But this is the kind of stuff that's going on around the country. And these issues are popping up all over the place. School districts reacting, state legislatures, and this is mainly going on in state legislatures, although the House of Representatives has also passed something that's never gonna go anywhere in the Senate. But uh, there are many states in which both houses of the legislature are controlled by Republicans and the Republican party has made this a crusade, specifically focused on transgender people, but also focused on, on all LGBTQ people when it comes to public education. So uh, we're gonna see these cases popping up around the country. And uh, depending on the specifics of the policy in question, who the plaintiffs are, what the procedure is, they may or may not violate the constitution. But the Supreme Court has traditionally given great leeway to school districts to exercise discretion about what books to select for their library collections and what kind of curriculum they can do, uh, which is why the attempt to attack the constitutionality of the uh, don't say yay so-called law from Florida is not a slam dunk, we have to say. You know, the legislature has a fair amount of discretion on dictating curricular policy for the schools. So we'll see what happens. If someone can finally come up, I think that, that we've already had dismissals in more than one case challenging the don't say gay law on standing grounds. Very interesting standing issues, as you point out. And a reminder that we're still waiting for some pretty key Supreme Court decisions that could greatly impact standing doctrine going forward. I'm thinking about the student loan case that's pending, and I'm also thinking about 303 Creative. Yeah, uh, we, we have a lot of stuff that's uh, sort of unsettled at the moment. And uh, in terms of stuff that's unsettled, I also have an oath note to talk about. Uh, which we usually do to end our program. And of note is that a federal district judge in San Francisco, appointed by President Obama, Haywood S. Gilliam Jr., seems to have issued a somewhat pathbreaking decision in a prisoner case. And uh, unlike the vast majority of the prisoner cases we voted on, this is not a pro se case. This is a case where a transgender woman has gotten a law firm, actually two law firms involved, in, uh, in representing her. And her name is C.J. Smith, transgender woman. The C is C, initial C, J, not sure what it stands for. But uh, C.J. Smith is a transgender woman. She's doing time in San Quentin. We're not told in the opinion what she's doing time for. Uh, frequently, uh, when, you find, uh, when you find transgender inmates in prison, it's for white collar crime issues. But in, in any event, she has been the victim, she alleges in her complaint, of numerous acts of assault, discrimination, threats of retaliation related to her gender expression and identity by other people in custody and by prison employees. So she's got a whole raft of complaints and she sues under the Eighth Amendment and also sues under the Equal Protection Clause and usually these lawsuits are focused on particular guards or particular local prison administrators. She's suing them, but she's also suing the warden. And she's also suing the secretary of the California Corrections Department. And uh, this opinion has to do with a motion to dismiss by the warden and the secretary. 
and uh, one recurring theme as we read these cases is you can't sue the warden unless you can allege that the warden had some personal involvement in denying your Eighth Amendment rights that you're suing for cruel and unusual punishment. And that stems from the one case in which the Supreme Court has addressed this issue of uh, transgender women in prison, uh, Farmer versus Brennan from way back in the 1980s, where they said that if a prison official is aware of a significant risk to a prisoner and does not take reasonable steps to protect the prisoner from that risk, whether it's a medical risk or it's assault or something like that, then they might be sued if they are in a position to do something about it and they're deliberately indifferent. They don't do something and the prisoner in fact is assaulted, something like that. In this case, the warden says, I had nothing to do with these assaults or any of this stuff. And so does the uh, secretary. Uh, the warden is Ron Davis, the secretary is Ralph Diaz. They moved to dismiss them from the case as defendants on the ground that they had no personal responsibility. Well, the theory of the complaint as to them is that the Prison Rape Elimination Act, PREA, P-R-E-A, so it's usually just referred to as PREA, a federal statute that was passed to address the issue of sexual assaults in prisons. And there are specific provisions in PREA and in the regulations under PREA that sort of state what best practices are to protect transgender inmates from sexual assault, because this is a recurring issue with transgender inmates, especially because of the practice of prisons that transgender inmates are usually housed in prisons consistent with their uh, sex as identified at birth, so-called biological sex, as opposed to their gender gender expression or their gender identity. And uh, in many prison systems, the difference in how they're housed has to do with whether they have transitioned before prison and no longer have male genitals. Then maybe we'll talk about putting them in a women's prison. And in some very large prison systems where there are lots of transgender prisoners, they may even have a separate section for transgender prisoners to try to take care of, the, of some of the problems that transgender prisoners face. But in this case, it seems that the PREA guidelines have not been followed in California. That uh, Mr. Diaz, who's uh, the, the secretary of the corrections department, is charged with seeing that these, these guidelines are implemented. And the warden, the warden himself, has two specific roles within the prison that are required by statute or regulations. One of them is that he's gonna be the chair of the prison's institutional advisory committee, which is supposed to meet with inmates on a regular basis to hear their complaints and address their complaints. And it seems that in at least two of those meetings, various transgender prisoners, including CJ Smith, the plaintiff in this case, have made specific complaints and raised specific safety issues, particularly about showers that transgender women in male prisons wanna be able to shower without male prisoners being present. So they should be at a separate time. Well, this person's not doing that at San Quentin and in California generally. They haven't, and Priya, the Priya regs say you should do this. So in addition to that, he's also the chairman of the Institutional Priya Review Committee. Every prison is supposed to have a review committee to deal with Priya issues, to investigate uh, incidents of sexual assault in the prison, 
to check out the uh, physical surroundings, uh, the circumstances, who were the guards, where were they, why didn't they break things up, that kind of thing. And he is chair of that. And the Institutional Peer Review Committee is supposed to produce an annual report on incidents. And he's supposed to review it and sign off on it. So you think there's some deliberate indifference here? I mean, if they haven't implemented the PREA requirements, the theory of this uh, complaint is, then they are being deliberately indifferent to a known risk. And how do they know there's a risk? Well, he's sitting on these two committees in which the risks are being documented. Unless he's blowing off his job entirely, he's just signing it without reading it. And he's having nothing to do with the report. And there's also an audit that's done. These reports are sent up to the state and there's an audit done of each prison to see whether they comply. And so where's, uh, where's the secretary of the, uh, of the corrections department who is presumably like, you know, the secretary of state or secretary of defense is the chief executive officer of the department. Why aren't they implementing this? Why aren't they cracking down on the prisons? So the judge here says, I'm not going to dismiss this one. I'm going to find that under Farmer versus Brennan, the complaint alleges enough, especially with respect to the ward, a little less directly with respect to the secretary of the commission's department, but then reports do flow up to him. So uh, unless he's not reading the reports that are coming into him, he can't claim that he doesn't have knowledge. He's on notice. And if he doesn't do something about this, that's deliberate indifference. You've got to do something. Uh, so Judge Gilliam refuses to dismiss. And this is the first time I've seen something like this, holding the warden and uh, top state official personally liable here. And he's, and the judge says qualified immunity. Well, I don't think so. I don't think there's qualified immunity here. I think there's Farmer v. Brennan. I think we have Ninth Circuit precedents. They've got to know that they have responsibility to protect transgender inmates once they know that they're in an endangered situation. And the allegations of the complaint are that they know. So you've alleged enough to survive a motion to dismiss here. Uh, there are also this, this complaint goes against various prison guards and other people. They weren't part of this motion to dismiss. So they're not part of this, uh, part of this opinion. This was just about whether to dismiss Mr. Davis and, uh, and uh, Secretary Diaz. So we'll see where this one goes. This is gonna be interesting to follow up on. I, I thought it was significant enough that in this issue of law notes, uh, I highlighted this case as being of potential importance. A very meaningful procedural victory. I hear what you're saying in terms of substantive TBD. Thank you so I'd much. I'd like for us to talk about prisoner litigation more often on, on the podcast because uh, it's a very, very active area of litigation that gets very little attention from the press. I mean, there isn't a big constituency out there for basically transgender prisoners. Some cases about gay prisoners, but most of them about transgender prisoners. Agreed. And I wanted to thank you and all the authors on the team of Law Notes for the hard work in terms of finding those obscure decisions, finding those slip opinions that haven't been made widely available, and making sure to shine a light on these important legal issues that are predominantly affecting our transgender and siblings who are currently incarcerated. So I'm looking forward to further conversations on those fronts. Thank you so much for joining us today for our March edition of Law Notes. And as always, thank you to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.